I am delighted to see that we have a very ample turnout tonight. I think the Bad Talks community is getting enriched. So I'm hoping that new people here will find this worthwhile and join us for future talks. Speaking of which, uh, the next one is June 12th. And our kind of working title is Urban Dwellings. Um, you need only look out the window to see how that got inspired. Uh, and, but tonight, um, obviously a topic of interest to many. And we have uh, now switched things around a little bit. Um, Kyle Hepner, our very capable interlocutor, is instead of eliciting expertise, he's going to deliver some of his own. And John Kilfoyle, our, our co-founder of Ad Talks, uh, will be uh, moderating our panel. So without further ado, um, oh, one last reminder. Um, Bad Talks is now available on the Bad Talks website as a podcast, so if you're interested in hearing again what you're going to hear tonight, uh, give us a few days and it'll be up. Uh, and um, lastly, uh, I want to invite everyone to deliver ideas to us for future topics. And the website, badtalks.com, is the place to do it. Let us know what you think. Yes? Yes? That's right. I talk about urban dwellings. Uh, with that, I'll leave it up to John. Excellent. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you very much, everybody, for uh, coming to join us tonight at Bad Talks. Um, <clears throat> I will try my best to fill the shoes of Kyle, who somehow <clears throat> we convinced him to be on the panel tonight. We, we didn't really ask him. We just kind of told him. We're like, oh, we put you on the panel, it's going to be really great. You know, you'll, don't worry, you'll do fine. We'll just, you know, you'll be good. So uh, he agreed to do it. Um, we're very, very thankful. Um, and so I will, I will try to do my best uh, to, fill, to fill his shoes tonight as the moderator. So <clears throat> just to give you guys a little bit of background on Bad Talks, if you haven't been before, very, very interactive. Um, and specifically with a topic like tonight's topic, um, we are going to be looking to you for your questions. This is, this is a dialogue. It's by no means a, a presentation. Um, it's a back and forth. Uh, it's meant to be interactive. Um, and so if you have a question, please raise your hand. We have a handheld mic um, that Cindy right over there is going to be running around with. Um, if you have a question, if you could just hang on to it until you get the mic. That way, we can make sure that everybody hears you and that it gets captured for, um, for the podcast as well. So we'll get rolling. We have a, a pretty rich uh, topic tonight, um, which is, uh, the, the title is Get Your Stuff Out There. And so in today's uh, plugged-in world, an eye-catching public profile is crucial for attracting clients and collaborators. And so we're very excited that you've joined us for this practical discussion of photography, social media, self-presentation, and marketing. Um, we've put together what we feel is a very, very rich panel of people, um, experts on this, on this topic. Um, and so I would like to introduce you um, very briefly to each of our panelists. Right next to me, Mr. Michael J. Lee. Good evening. I'm Michael Lee. I was born and raised in New Jersey. Don't hold that against me. I am a recovering interior designer. 
I was off that wagon for 16 years. Granted, it was a well-appointed wagon by Celeste Cooper and the late Richard Fitzgerald. Twelve years ago, I had a midlife crisis, and rather than buying a Porsche and dyeing my hair blonde, which is becoming increasingly gray these days, I spent an obscene amount of money on camera, lenses, lighting, and I taught myself how to be a photographer. And while I'm here to talk about photography, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about social media. Facebook opened its doors on June 6, 2006, and my company was born on March 1st, 2007. To say that we grew up together would be an understatement. I can't imagine my company without social media. We have Katie Nolan. Hi, I uh, work for Patrick Ahern Architect. I am his marketing director. And so for those who are not familiar with Patrick's work, Patrick specializes in classic American architecture for contemporary living. Uh, in other words, it's, um, our homes uh, celebrate history and the local vernacular on the exteriors and inside they celebrate uh, the way people want to live today uh, with open floor plans that are conducive to indoor outdoor living. So New England Home asked me to talk today because uh, we are actually in the process of redoing our website. So we can uh, speak about you know, that process and some of the things that we've learned and yeah. And Kyle. Um, <clears throat> well, I think many of you know me from a lot of these previous talks, but just uh, as to do my part as panelist, my name is Kyle Hepner. I am currently the editor in chief of New England Home. I've been a member, I've been with New England Home since we founded it back in 2005, although I actually got into it by a kind of an odd backdoor. I was originally the art director because I had been running a graphic design studio. Uh, before the magazine got going. Um, so uh, unusually, I didn't come into this business through the journalism side doing design as a beat. I actually came in from the design side as someone who practiced a field that was different from interior design and architecture, but shares a great deal of commonality with those things uh, because a lot of the issues of what makes a beautiful graphic presentation are very similar to what makes a beautifully uh, detailed or uh, proportioned home or a beautiful room. Uh, so it seemed like a very natural fit. Um, and so the last 15 years have been uh, just delving ever deeper into all the beautiful things that you guys do. So let's do a quick poll of the room. Um, when you saw the topic get into your inbox, what, uh, let's see a, a show of hands. For how many people came here this evening to learn more about social media? How about getting your work published? And who just needs a general marketing 911? <laughs> Excellent. Okay. All right, we're good. All right, well, we, we're going to give you that 911, so it's, it's good. You'll be fine. Uh, the, the, the hope here is that there's tangible takeaways for everybody um, that you can put into use right away. Um, so we're going to get started with um, Katie's presentation. Katie's going to be kind of talking a little bit about just marketing from a global perspective. Um, and just remember, uh, this is highly, highly interactive. If you have questions, put your hand up. Uh, wait for that handheld microphone, and then uh, you can ask your question. We'll get right to you. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay, so I'm here to talk about self-presentation. And um, you know, for the five minutes, seven minutes here to talk, we're gonna I'm gonna talk about websites as kind of the overall general overarching theme of your self-presentation in the digital world. Um, okay. So this is this is our website currently. This is what we're working with, and there are um, you know some great things about our website, and there's ways that we need to improve, um, which we'll we'll go into further. Um, but this is Patrick Ahern, his website now. Okay, so the importance of a website. 88% of consumers will research a um, product or you know your company before making a purchase decision. So it's very important to have that. Um, your website, your presence. So if you don't have a website right off the bat, you're already deemed as less credible. Um, another point is, you know, it serves as a central hub for information. It's available 24/7. So when you and your team go home at night, you know, your website stays working hard for you. You know, providing that information for people that need it. Um, and it supports all your digital marketing efforts. And you know that with your call to actions, you know, anything that you do, any of your goals, it's going to drive consumers back to your website. Um, and that's where they're going to find more information and hopefully go in that endless scroll. Um, so that is the importance. But if it's not implemented correctly, it can also be your worst enemy. So it takes 0 0.05 seconds for users to make an opinion about your website. And so with that short amount of time, it's not surprising that 94% uh, of impressions are design related. So design is very crucial. You know, if, you, if your users have a poor experience, you, know, you can have great content on there, but they're not gonna stay long enough to digest it. So you need to have a, a good looking website. And you can see that website actually exists. It's a paradise with a view.com. And it's very, that's our homepage. So I don't think I need to list off the reasons why it's not good. <laughs> but, and you know, continuing with the theme of credibility, 75% of consumers admit to making judgments based on a company's credibility, based on the company's website, which seems backwards, but you know, that's how people work. And so beyond good design, your website should convey your message. You know, that's your philosophy, your purpose, your mission, your services. Um, you know, all that important information. It should set you apart from others in the industry. It should build credibility with awards, press, testimonials, you know, the people that you work with. So this is things that other people speak about you and not like, my company is great. You know, this is other people saying your company is great. Uh, deliver strong content geared towards SEO, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And be responsible for mo mobile users because that is very important. I'd say like half of our uh, website users, visitors, they're on mobile. So if, they're, if the mobile experience is not a good experience. SEO is search engine optimization. I, I'm not even touching on this. This is sorry. <laughs> That's a whole nother topic, but I'll touch a little bit later. <laughs> All right, so those are the general practices. What I just said, those are general practices that you kind of want to do. But what works for one company isn't going to work for every company. You know, so instead of going over, you know, like I can say, like, you know, well, so 
I would say that these are the website mistakes to avoid. Um, you know, homepage, you don't want too much information, like that awful website I showed you earlier. Um, and you also don't want no information at all. And that's actually uh, what our website is right now. Right now we just have an image in the blog. So our new website will have you know, a little a bit about, I will include the blog, what's new, maybe something about our book. But you know, it's going to give you a little information. Because I'd say only Coca-Cola could probably get away with no information on their homepage, you know, and they already have a great reputation. Uh, menu, you know, you don't want it to be too crowded or difficult to use. You want it to be simple. Um, you know, I don't think I'm talking to anybody that has like an Amazon site map. You know, you don't have a million different pages. So you kind of want to condense that into main categories that's easier for people to use. Um, your about section, you don't want to admit it. This is the way that you want to humanize your firm. You know, you tell a little bit about your company, especially if it's a family company, you know, you kind of want to emphasize that. Um, you know, some people find that very important. So contact, don't bury it. It should be on your footer. Uh, it should be like, so every page, your footer's on every page and um, you have your contact page. But you don't want people to struggle to be able to find your information. If they want to call, they sh it should just be available. Uh, mobile. So this is very important. Like I said, if it's not responsive, people aren't going to look at it. And you know, you lose your audience right there. Um, and also like small buttons. You know, our fingers are only so small. So when you're touching the buttons and the links are too small, like you would, you know, and I'm sure you guys have but in that situation where you press on the wrong link, you want to have big buttons for your mobile. Content, um, <laughs> so there's a balance. You don't want to have no content. And this is something that we're working on. So if you go to our portfolio, uh, our, for our house, it's, it's just pictures. There's no content. And so that's something that we're going to do. We're include probably 100 words, around 100 words, just to get enough for SEO. Yeah. So Google knows what you're talking about because Google can't read pictures, you know, so they need to know what's in the picture, what is important about this picture, you know, and that's something that you would do in your content. But at the same time, SEO also, or like Google will um, punish you if you're, if you're too repetitive. So you don't want to you know, include the same content on multiple sites. You want it to be a little bit varied. Um, and you don't want to be too long either. I mean, we only have their attention for only so much. I mean, you saw that 0.05 seconds it takes them to make an opinion. So you want to be able to grab their um, attention. And if they want to learn more, you put like a button that says, like, if you want to learn more, go to this, you know, so you can read more. Uh, headings, you want to have your H1 and H2 mainly because, you know, hierarchy, people need to know what's, you know, in that content, in that post, but also for, again, Google and SEO reasons. They look to the H1 and H2 headers to know what that content's about when they crawl your page. Uh, font, you need it to be um, readable, you know, not too small. Um, no display fonts, cursive, uh, low contrasting colors. Um, it's very important, but honestly, you see it all the time. Um, and, and for body copy, sans serif is typically the best practice for that one. 
Images, you know, if you have high resolution images, use higher resolution images, not the low resolution, because they just, they don't look great. Um, and speed, speed's very important. If it's taking too long for your website to load, people are gonna give up, they're gonna go somewhere else. So, self-explanatory. Also, HTTPS. Hypertext Transfer Protocol Secure. Super boring, but very important. So basically, Google wants to head towards a completely secure worldwide web. That means every single website. So if you don't have a secure website already, you're already kind of behind the eight ball on that. Um, a quick statistic, and I don't think many people out here have an e-commerce site, but 84% of users will abandon their purchase if the website's insecure. Um, and that just means even putting your email information, address, anything. Um, Google includes the HTTPS in their ranking, so if you, it is secure, it will go higher, uh, and it loads faster than HTTP hence the uh, speed earlier that we talked about. Um, also, Google Chrome labels non-secure sites as bad, so they encourage users not even to look at it, which doesn't mean it's necessarily harmful, but it, that's like the impression that Google Chrome gives it. So you, you, know, you don't want to turn people away. So the big topic, uh, Hire versus DIY. So there's a lot, you know, you go into the mistakes. There's a lot of things that you can easily implement. You know, if you feel like you need to build your about page, or like I said, like you need to add content onto your portfolio, that's easy to do. You know, but if you decide that you need to do a whole new website like we're doing now, um, there's two options. You could hire someone or you can do it yourself. Hiring, um, so it's, it's kind of crazy. It can be from like minimum 1,000 to like 100,000 based on you know, what you need functionality for your website. Um, you know, but if you hire someone, you're gonna get a complete custom design, complete custom functionality. You know, your website's not gonna look like anybody else's. And I'd have to say, like, you know, they know the best practices. They know, uh, you know, Google's new analytics or whatnot. Like, you know, they know that. So you don't have to do all that research. Um, less time required, no experience needed. Um, you do it yourself. I would recommend WordPress, Wix, or Squarespace. I think they're all free. Um, but, you know, they come with basic design themes. You can choose to purchase a you know, premier or premium uh, theme and plug-in functionality, but you need, you know, it requires their full time, and you need to know about domain name, hosting, content management systems, and uh, basic understanding of HTML, CSS. And I'd say, so I actually built Patrick's website five years ago. Um, I went to school for interactive media. I, my master's was in that. But I've been out of the interactive media, kind of like that industry for five years, and there's been so much change that I, you know, it's easier for us, makes more sense for us to farm it out. And a little promo, we're using Jack Morton Worldwide. So, Jack Morton Worldwide. Yes. 
Any questions? Awesome. Oh, go ahead. Great question. Um, so this is the way if you use uh, Google Chrome is on. I don't know if it's on Firefox. I always use Google Chrome. So it will say right in the bar HTTPS, and it will have the lock. If it's not secure, it will say not secure, and there will be a info. And sometimes there will be like a red like warning sign, which you want to completely avoid. Um, so if you don't use Google Chrome, how do you know? It's in all, it's in all browsers. It is? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think most browsers have the little lock symbol somewhere up there. Uh, and also at the beginning of the name of the website, it'll say HTTPS colon slash slash. Instead of just HTTP, it has the S there. Been a great audience. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. We'll, oh, sorry. We'll be getting back to some okay. of these points, I think, in, in some of the other presentations and in the conversation afterwards, also. Excellent. Thank you. Oh, boy. So Michael's telling me that he's going to talk for the, until Friday. So I hope that everybody has. Nowhere so to go. To talk. The music's going to come on. John's going to escort me off the stage, just so you know. <laughs> so lifestyle. Whether you're a designer, architect, or builder, what you are selling is lifestyle. In the, day, in the age of social media, high-quality photos are an expectation rather than exception to the rule. I recognize a lot of faces in here, and so a lot of you know that I scout every project I shoot. I do that for two reasons. One, the camera sees space differently than the eye, and I want you to be as prepared as possible for the shoot. Number two, I do it for me. I study these like you cannot believe. So when I go into a shoot, I can be prepared to hopefully come up with the answer when the image isn't working and we need something to make it compelling. This is a foyer in Needham by um, Hawthorne Builders and designer Jess Shabbat. I found it more compelling to look at the foyer rather than the front door, but from the living room. I love the double arches. I love getting the stairs on the right. But some of you may be thinking, well, there's no focus. That's easily achievable. So this is something I don't normally do. I just shot this last week. This is for designer Bev Manrivkin. Um, and let's just get the elephant out of the room. Yes, I wanted a rug. The designer wanted a rug. For whatever reason, the designer said no. Even for the photo shoot, we couldn't have a rug. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I see when I set up the camera. The camera is set up for the architecture. I honestly don't care what the furniture is doing. It all is going to move. And this is important. If you're working with a photographer and they're not moving the furniture, they're not doing their job. The camera sees space differently. The furniture must move every time. The reason why I've set my camera up off-center is because I knew how I was going to move the furniture. By pulling the banquette out, it changes the scale of it. It doesn't feel squished in the corner. It feels welcoming. I want to sit here. Again, lifestyle. We're not selling 
We're selling a mood. We're selling an emotion. We want to be there. So, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I miss Design New England. <laughs> Design New England had a January-February issue every year, and that was their kitchen and bath issue. And all four features were kitchen-centric, and there was a 99.9% .9 chance that your kitchen was going to be on the cover. This is a home in Cambridge that got renovation by D. Elms. We set this up as the cover try. The homeowners, Katie and Lauren, were eager and interested to being part of the shoot. So Lauren, so Katie's a stay-at-home mom, and Lauren is the badass working real estate agent. We were told we had 10 minutes of her time. So I set this up, keeping in mind Design New England's name across the top, some type, and I put myself in place of where I wanted <laughs> Katie and Lauren, so that when Lauren got there, knowing I had a very finite amount of time, I could say, Lauren, you're here, Katie, you are here. And so how many of you have a newer iPhone that has two lenses on it? Okay, I want you to open it, okay? When you open it to the camera, there's going to be a little circle with a 1x. I want you to press it so it goes to 2x. And then I want you to promise me that you will never take another photo again in 1x. <laughs> And I'm going to explain why. So who knows what the, what the um, fair use doctrine is? It's basically an extension of copyright law that says I can use someone else's photograph as long as I'm using it for criticism, comment, new reporting, teaching, scholarship, research, blogging, etc. I'm using this for criticism. The scale, the scale of this is absurd. And the reason why is the camera is too close to the subject. What you don't know, behind this second island, there is a large sofa table and a sectional sofa. What this photographer did is they put their camera down in front of the sofa table and used as wide a lens as they needed so they could get the fridge, the closet doors, and the arch. Who shot that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I was also hired to shoot this kitchen. This was the contractor's photographer. I was also hired by the architect and designer to shoot this kitchen. The reason why I'm telling you to go to 2x is the camera physically has to be as far away from the subject as possible, which forces you to use a longer lens. It's the lens that puts you in the room, not the camera. This is badass William Waldron. He is a New York photographer. I love this guy. And he's showing you what I'm trying to tell you. He's trying to get his camera physically as far away from whatever is in that window. So the perspective and the scale is correct. This is my photo. What I did with help was move the sofa table and the sectional so I could get back further. I'm still giving you the arch, I'm giving you the fridge, I'm giving you the closet doors, but I'm also grounding the island in the foreground. But look at the scale. Look at how the hood so far away is properly scaled. This is critical. And I see that other kind of photography all the time. And it's frustrating. <laughs> this was my William Waldron moment. This is a Back Bay townhouse. I shot the whole thing. I had scouted it. And there was one particular shot where I knew I needed to get the camera on the other side of the railing. But I'd forgotten that there was this little ledge. And it was, you know, safe enough that I felt comfortable doing it. 
This is a living room by Phoebe Lovejoy. This is as far as most designers get with their clients, but it's not camera ready. This mustard yellow color needs to move through the styling. The other thing that occurred to me when I was scouting this is I love the sexy shape of the wing chair and I thought, well, wouldn't that be better in the foreground? So while we were scouting, we moved it up to the front. Moving the chain link table is a mistake, gets too big. But you see how that sort of draws you in. And then this was the final shot. And we were really excited when we found out it was the cover architectural, it was not. <laughs> um, so back to your fancy iPhone X. This is a 13 megapixel camera. When I started 12 years ago, my camera was 18 megapixels. The camera I use now is 52 megapixels. I'm not into DIY photography, just like you're not into DIY teaching a homeowner how to do design. You need to hire a professional to be at the level you want to be at. These are a series of Instagram-worthy, ready vignettes, all cropped out of one photograph. All crisp, all clear. Now, who wants to know what this really looks like? Yeah? So when I scouted this, so the sofa is not really in that position. The sofa acts as a separation between the living room and the dining room. It's perfectly executed design-wise, but it doesn't work in the camera. I cannot get into the living room. I cannot get over this. We call this a five-guy sofa because it takes five guys to move it. <laughs> but it's worth it. And I think this is interesting too. So this is, I shot this apartment for D. Elms. This was their previous residence, which ran a New England home. And I think it's interesting to see how D. repurposed pretty much everything. This is my favorite social media story. So I met Brad Walker very briefly on a magazine shoot for a magazine called Esplanade that shuttered many years ago. And then through social media, he had friends of friends, I had friends of friends, we would show up, and I finally, um, I tried, I friended him. He writes me a message, you know, who are you? <laughs> so, we chat, we friend each other. Over about 10 months, I'll like something, he'll like something, and then I get a call. We finished this project called Atrium House on Beacon Street. They had gutted the top four floors of this incredible brownstone. I went to scout it. And they basically said this. They have had a lot of success in one particular New England magazine. This editor loves them. They get features all the time. But they wanted to be a New England home. That was their goal. However, they wanted to produce the shoot themselves. They wanted to be in control of the styling. Now, the reason why projects get reshot, and Kyle will elaborate on this, is one, styling. If the magazine doesn't like the styling, two, artwork. There may be one or two pieces of art that the magazine doesn't feel works. So it was a really big deal, not only that they accepted the project, but that then it became the cover. I just want to show you this one image, because I want you to understand the level of detail that I especially go into with my clients. So you get to the top floor, and there's this office. I, I, I'm good, but I'm not that good. I can't make this look any better. 
Now, if you look at it from this perspective, it starts to open up, starts to feel bigger. I'm going to use a wider lens. I want to show more. But the desk gets lost in the railing, and it crowds that space. It makes the space feel small. I go around the corner. I shoot back towards the desk. The desk just disappears. It doesn't work. So I talk to them about moving the desk so it's perpendicular off the wall. I'll get rid of the blind cut door in Photoshop. The desk chair will literally be hitting the wall, but it doesn't matter. You won't know that. You know, this probably talk took them three hours to set up. The desk was bolted to the wall. They had to have the contractor move it. Probably took me 20 minutes to shoot it, but it's worth the investment. <laughs> so this is the second way of getting published. This is a Mark Cutker house, along with Robin Gannon, who did the interior design. They hired me to scout the house and then pitch it to New England Home in the hopes that they would pick it up and New England Home would commission the shoot. Now, how you know the difference when you look at a magazine is see how it says produced, probably you can't read it, but it says produced by Karen Lidbeck Brent. If you look at a feature and it says written or text by and photo by and nothing else, you know that the magazine ran the project as shot. If they list style by, directed by, produced by, then you know the magazine commissioned the shoot. So this is just one of the scouting shots. You know, it's not finished, but there's enough information there for, ma for the magazine to make a commitment about shooting it. And then I want to go back to scale. As you can see, the second dining room is about 36 to 42 inches away from the glass doors. So when I scout this, you know, I'm not going to go crazy. I'm just going to stand against the glass door and shoot it as wide as I can because I felt that this composition was strong. But when we actually shoot it, I'm going to open the door. I'm going to go 10, 12, as far as I can get back away from the table. Again, scale. It means everything. Thank you. Yes, Cheryl. I take a shitload of verticals. Sorry, I'm not supposed to swear. <laughs> I, I actually, I don't get in trouble, but I take a lot of verticals. Covers are verticals. <laughs> Covers are verticals. It's, it's social, well, Instagram has changed. You know, you can get away with not having a square image anymore. So I like verticals better. I always have. I, I always think of horizontals as being more documentary. They tend to show more information. They tend to be bigger shots. You know, vignettes, details are almost always a vertical. I can crop them for you, or if you don't have someone in-house who can do that. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm not that photographer. Regarding reaching out to editors, having photography provided and sending it to them, or waiting to see their response if they're going to actually come out and shoot it. If you have a project that you feel that 
Um, that's a political question. Um, we're, this is a, we're in a visual country, okay? If you don't include images in your pitch, an editor more than likely is not going to read it and think, oh, it's interesting, send me pictures. They're probably just going to move on. Um, you, photos taken if you know yes. they're going to retake them. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. And the reason why is this. I'll, actually, you'll, you will appreciate this. So <laughs> since in the last eight years, my very first feature in New England Home was eight years ago. Since then, I've had 31 features. And I'm talking about full features, not like front of the book or little kitchen and bath things. Eleven of those ran as shot. Five of those were accepted based on the scouting, and then New England Home commissioned the shoot, and 15 of them were reshoots. Again, going back, and Kyle can elaborate on that more, the decisions why something is reshot, but I think most of the time it's about the styling and the artwork. Um, is it worth the reshooting? You have to, every homeowner is different. You have to gauge that. The one thing you have to look at is if you've already shot it, you have that marketing material available, even if you're only using it privately, which the magazine would appreciate, you have it available to use. You can market with it. Yeah, I would actually add one tiny little thing to that since yeah. we're on the subject, which is it also may depend on your relationship with the clients, because there are projects where you may only have one chance to get in and do the photography. And if you do it yourself, and then you send it to magazines who want to be able to reshoot it and can't, they might end up turning down the story because of that. So it, it may depend on your feel for whether multiple shoots are actually an option. There's one more question in the back. Uh, so, uh, or not, I can't uh, you mentioned uh, about photoshopping out an element. I'm curious. Uh, <laughs> Architects tend to want to leave the mechanicals in. Designers tend to want to take them out. Um, it's client by client. I have designers who don't want to see anything on the ceiling. I have designers who want to see some on the ceiling. So when you look at it, you're like, did anybody light this space? Um, it depends. It's If you use a square recess light, I will leave it in. If you use a round one, I will take it out. <laughs> I love the square lights that are plastered up to the edge. They stay. <laughs> no. Square. Instagram is a square. We live in a square world. <laughs> You're welcome. I think this is a perfect segue into um, our final presentation. And then all hell is going to break loose because hands are just going to be flying. It's going to be crazy. You're going to want to be there. Um, and uh, this will be a somewhat condensed version of uh, what, as Katie said, there are some of these sub-sub-topics that could be entire evenings in themselves, like SEO, um, which will be a very boring evening, but very useful, probably. <laughs> Um, and so I, a lot of what um, Katie and Michael have said, I think, ties in very much with what I'm going to do. 
And so my condensation tonight, I, uh, before I got into publishing to the extent that I am now, I had a previous life that was intended to end up in academia. Uh, so I have a tendency to be very scholarly and talk way too much, and I'm gonna kind of keep it very focused. But left over from my previous life in academia, I do focus specifically on two things that I think are very important tonight, and they're probably the two takeaways, certainly from my presentation and possibly from the entire evening. Uh, the first one of those is think very carefully and plan what you intend to do. And number two is always do your homework. And I know that most of the people in this room are incredibly busy professionals. Many of you are running your own firm or you are running a staff of people running a firm and you're constantly out schmoozing clients and possibly doing your own billing and ordering things and tracking deliveries and everything else. And if you don't have the luxury of having, as Katie mentioned, someone tasked to do your marketing and your PR and you're trying to do it yourself, you probably have about 30 minutes every other month or something like that, if you're lucky. Uh, so you have to make that time commitment count. And what you can do, you need to really focus on. Uh, or even if you do have somebody tasked, you have to be the one who helps give them the vision of what you're actually trying to communicate. And most important, to whom you are trying to communicate that. And so who are you trying to reach? What do you want them to think about you and your work? Um, so, my first point, which Taylor, which comes on very well from what Michael talked about and is probably going to get me into a great deal of trouble with most of the architects and builders in the room, which is most of you here, given the work you do, actually want to connect with homeowners who are potential clients. You may think that you want to be in Architectural Record or all of these other magazines, but really what you want to do most for your PR and outreach is connect with actual people. And the things that actual people react to are images that have a, center, a focus and have a real kind of emotional feel to them because what they want is to kind of take one quick look in that 0.5 seconds that Katie mentioned and think, oh, that's so nice, or I wanna be there, or why can't I have that? Um, and a lot of what we're used to thinking of as architectural photography or particularly real estate photography is entirely not like that. But we've been told or we're, we have this idea that we have to present things in that way because that's what the editors are looking for and when it gets into Interior Design Magazine, it's gonna look really cool and swoopy on those big pages. Which is cool, if that's your goal, then that's really what you wanna do. If you are looking for Instagram images or images for advertising or images on your website that are gonna get people to love you and want to call you or email you to do homes for them, that may be a very different thing. And so I'll go through this part rather quickly because as I said, I tend to maunder on. Um, but these are just some comparisons visually that will remind you a little bit of some of the things that Michael already talked about. Different ways of capturing a space. Uh, this is an amazing house over in Cambridge. Uh, it's actually on Brattle Street, but you didn't hear me say that. Um, by uh, Adolfo Perez and Manuel de Santarén uh, worked on this together. 
Um, it's an absolutely, this is the master bath. It's actually quite a gorgeous place with these huge frosted glass panels on the walls. Um, and the, um, one of the parties involved had had an initial set of photos taken, like Michael has suggested, by a, a professional photographer for their use. And so this is the presentation of that bath that they got. And so it's very much like you see in real estate ads where somebody was crouching in the back corner behind the uh, tub looking toward the uh, master closet and gets bunches of walls, lots of floor, lots of ceilings. So you see how this often works. You see lots of finishes. But being in the space feels absolutely nothing like this. And so this looks interesting from an, a kind of a geometric point of view, and all the lights are on, so you can sort of see everything. But this isn't the sort of thing that gives people an idea of what it's like to exist in the beautiful rooms that you make. And so when we went back to reshoot, we did a couple things. One, the photographer really wanted to do this other shot, which is still very much like the first one. Uh, so it's a more kind of geometricized version, the one on the left, which does actually show you three walls and it shows you a bunch of stuff, but you can see down at the bottom how much distortion there is of the uh, bathtub, which now looks like it's designed for an eight foot tall giant family, uh, which these people are not. They were perfectly nice and perfectly normally sized people. Um, it is styled a little bit, so that's preferable. Um, but the ones that we ended up using in the magazine and the ones that I would argue actually will kind of touch people more directly are the two on the right. Uh, the one at the top, which actually shows some of the beautiful cabinet work that was put into the vanities. Uh, and then the one at the bottom, which not only shows the gorgeous book matched stone behind the tub, but also you get the very cool glass door with the little rotating transom up there uh, that goes into, I can't remember if that side was the shower or the, uh, the toilet, because they were equal on either side. I think that may be the shower side, given that it has the, the thing for the steam. Uh, I will hurry up here. This is another room in that same house. Again, as originally shot for um, one of the people. Uh, shows a lot of moldings, shows a lot of walls, kind of gives you all the bits and pieces that are there. But when we did it, uh, we chose to, f again, do slightly smaller shots and do several of them to really capture that huge room rather than trying to get the whole thing in just one photo. Um, and again, the idea is to get kind of a reader or a viewer feel of, God, I really just want to walk into that. Uh, also, just another quick thing that Michael will agree with, shooting toward the light or shooting toward a window is always preferable to shooting away from windows where things start to look very, very flat, just from a, a photographic point of view. You get much more definition if you've got the kind of light and shadow uh, where you're shooting toward the window, uh, but it's harder to do technically. Images that engender emotion, I will speed up a little bit. Uh, this is a David Hassin project over in the North End. Uh, again, these are not photos that were taken for New England Home, but uh, they had it photographed by a wonderful photographer named Trent Bell. Um, and so I don't know why they did multiple versions of some of these, but it turned out to be very useful. This is the master bedroom, looking toward the master bath in the back uh, with a little balcony off the side. This is one version that has absolutely no styling. 
and all the lights are on, so it kind of gets all the architectural pieces of the room, but doesn't really tell you much other than that. And so they did a, almost exactly the same shot overall, but they turned the lights off, so you can now sort of see some of the beautiful shine on those pendants. They added a little console on the back wall underneath the art. They put in a, an unfortunately underscaled little table next to the table, next to the bed, <laughs> uh, which is way too low to work as a side table, you know, or as a uh, bedside table, but it's, it's still, it looks nice for the photos properly. So just the difference between that and even a fairly minimal level of lifestyle, you know, making it look like actual humans inhabit this can make a huge difference even if you don't think they would. This is an amazing house we did photograph for the magazine up on Mount Desert Island um, by Peter Forbes. This is the master bedroom. Um, and can you imagine waking up to that kind of view every morning? Um, this was taken for the architect. This is a version that we took for the magazine. So as you can see, we didn't change a huge amount of stuff, but just adding a little reading group here with a lamp and a table, changing the bedding out, putting in a couple of little pops of color, uh, emphasizing the verticality of the space by making it oh, a vertical rather than a horizontal shot. <laughs> to me, there's a huge difference there. There is. Um, another view of that same bedroom, as originally done for the architect, and then our version of the same thing. Again, the changes are not that great. Um, and they wouldn't be that hard to arrange if you were going to do a photographic, take a day and spend all the money to have a photographer come in, spending a little time getting some decent looking props and some nice flowers and some bedding is not a huge investment, but it's absolutely worth it. Um, and this is uh, another version. This is an architect's version of a house down in uh, Connecticut. Uh, plus, which we then shot happily in the autumn and turned into one of my favorite shots, I think, of the entire time I've been at New England Home. Um, you can also still do very nice architectural close-ups of interesting uh, building parts, but they can also still be styled as if it's a livable uh, place. And so, you know, here's a study of all of these, you know, this roof line and these really kind of interesting bracket-like things holding up the porch. Um, but you've got the Adirondack chair and you've got a couple nice pillows and a candle and some stuff like that, which makes a huge difference. Um, again, sort of the architect's version of looking into the kitchen, which is where those two pavilions that make the house come together. Um, but you also on the right have this lovely blank wall with a bunch of uh, vents and uh, <laughs> controls and stuff like that. Um, and to me, it's hard to even see how the kitchen relates to the rest of the, the room. So we kind of went off to the side where you can actually see three-dimensionally how those go in and just added a few little pops of color to kind of humanize that. Same idea in the living room, sort of the original architect's shot, which is very wide and just kind of goes flat on at this line of, of doors. Um, again, we kind of went off to the side, getting a little bit more of the beams and the way those pavilions come together in this angled way, uh, and just added some livability. So um, that is really, I think, for tonight, the part that I wanted to focus on. Uh, the rest of this, which I'd be happy to talk about with people later, 
uh, after the, the official thing over, is more of the doing your homework of like literally what kinds of magazines are there, who should you talk with, that kind of thing. But I really think for tonight, because magazines are not always the focus anymore, um, websites, Instagram, all of the online places where your work can be seen and appreciated by people, the kind of visual presentation you make is crucial in all of those venues. And so I think focusing specifically on one of them isn't really gonna help as much as having a general kind of thought about what is the story we want to tell? Are the visuals that we're putting together really telling that story and are they really going to touch and attract the people we want to reach out to is what I would like to leave you with tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kyle. Thank you, Kyle. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kyle. I think that one of the things that I wanted to, to touch on with, with all three of you coming off of your presentations is what is the value in and how do we go about defining who is our target market? Katie, maybe you could lead us off about that. How do I define, how do I define who my target market is? Sure. So I think we're a little bit unique in the sense that um, Patrick is in the point of his career where he's also giving back to the industry. So he's also kind of like he's trying to teach um, you know other architects and other interior designers kind of his way of thinking and whatnot. So homeowners are our primary audience. You know those are the people that we're trying to reach in you know in certain demographics, of course. But um, you know it does also expand to you guys. You know, and we have to cater our tone and whatnot. So we're not speaking to just architects. So we have to avoid using, um, you know, highly technical terms, or and we can't, you know, be too laymen. And we're also not talking to the do-it-yourselfers too. Um, you know, we did just start a blog, um, and it does provide a lot of tips based on Patrick's process and his ideas. But we are careful not to, you know, if you want to install beadboard, this is how you do it. That's not our audience. Super helpful. Michael. <laughs> when, you, when you want to, when you've defined who you want to reach out to, um, what do you tell them? How do you tell them? So who knows what a Henry is? It's a Henry. High earnings, yes, not yet rich. Maybe that's your target audience. That is the target audience right now of big brands because millennials will be the largest buying power superseding baby boomers. And so big brands want to target people in that age bracket so that way you decide at that age that you're gonna be a Tide subscriber for life or you're gonna buy Wrigley's gum for life. And a lot of designers that I know target that market. You know, maybe you're targeting empty nesters who are moving into all of these buildings that we're building. You know, so maybe you wanna target your portfolio to more, more city type views. The best advice I think that I give to any designer is only photograph the work you want to do. You know, if you have a client who just really wanted a cherry kitchen, unless you want to do 50 more cherry kitchens, do not photograph it. 
Kyle, from your perspective, anything that you would add to how do you, how do you position your message uniquely? Um, well, I think, I mean, your work in a way is unique and that combination with, in combination with what, what Michael and Katie just talked about, which is deciding who the people you want to have as your future clients, that particular combination will make for something that is unique. Um, you know, I think it's important in our very saturated environment not to automatically think that you have to look like everything that's on HGTV or everything that's on house or whatever happens to be getting a lot of likes on Instagram. Uh, because if your stuff doesn't naturally look that way, no matter how many likes you get on it, you'll be getting likes from people who aren't actually gonna like your work if they see something that wasn't geared to look like everything else that's Instagram. So if you want to reach the people that your work will in fact speak to and who will be happy with what you can do for them, you want to come up with images that show, as Michael said, the work that you'd like to be doing, images that show the kind of work that you feel you personally can do that all of these other people can't. Um, but package it as beautifully as you can, uh, which means beautifully lit photographs, even if you're taking them yourselves. You, there are a lot of places online where you can get uh, tips for how to take better uh, cell phone photos. Um, even small amounts of, of work like that can make a huge difference. You know, looking at, if you are on Instagram and looking at other people's websites a lot, notice which things you like there and think about, okay, what is it about this image or what is it about this firm or what it is about this website design that attracts me? And if that's kind of the look and feel you're going for, analyze that and then do things that have the same effect for your own presentation that you hope will then attract other people to you. In the room, how many people here do their marketing entirely themselves? It's a good portion of the room. Who has, who is just completely overwhelmed and frustrated and just needs to know something, anything? How about you, right up front? What would you like to know? Well, I'm old. I need to know <laughs> <laughs> Do you currently use any social platforms, or are there so many that you just don't even know where to begin? That's good. You have to start somewhere. I have to caution you, though, about this. There's one rule of thumb in social media, and it's authenticity. If you want to hire someone, it needs to sound like it's your voice, because people will know. And one voice. Only have one person managing your social yeah. media. Yeah. I do ask her not to post anything unless she shows it to me first because I am kind of me, and the people that know me, they have yeah. to sound like me. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, if it doesn't look and sound like you, it's not going to do any good. No. Because you're the thing that you're selling. Right. So. I'm a little unique. 
We have a question right behind you, two, ro two rows behind you. Thank you. Hi, Trevor Fulmer. Um, I'm interested in your knowledge on what social media platform do you deem the most important? Instagram, 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 Instagram. For this industry. 63% of social media is made up of images. 63%. And when images are used in a social media post, the engagement rate goes up 180%. And yes, this industry, it's built for Instagram. What equals engagement rate? What do you mean by engagement rate? So how many of you have peers who you follow who have, say, 50,000 followers, and you're like, how do I get there? And honestly, that number doesn't matter. What matters is who's engaging. The way to figure out your engagement rate is you take a 30-day period, you add up the likes and the comments in that 30-day period, and then you divide it by the number of posts that you made in that 30-day period. That will give your average engagement per post. Then you're going to divide that number by how many followers you had at the end of that 30-day period. You multiply that times 100, and that will give you your average engagement rate. I know, I threw in algebra. <laughs> Basically, a 1% to 2.5% engagement rate is considered good. Anything below 1, you're not doing it right. If you're in the 35 to 5% engagement rate, you're doing a really good job. If you're Ellen DeGeneres, you're over 10% consistently. Her social media platform engagement rate is off the charts. Because she's relevant and she knows how to reach her readers, and I'm sure she's not doing all of it herself, but it sounds like she is. A question for um, Kyle, and I have a comment, because I do PR and marketing for a living. And um, if, you have to, if you have a limited budget, you're doing it yourself, the number one place you want to spend your money is on professional photography, because you can use that for your website, for your blog, for your award stations. Instagram, social media, and also projects to get published. And I also want to say PR is different from marketing. They're two <laughs> different things. PR yeah, is about different. getting exposure, being known, getting yourself published. Marketing is about permission marketing, reaching out to people, and getting lead generated and getting clients. You need both. They're two different things. <laughs> um, I have a question for you because I've heard that so everybody wants to be on house, 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 but I heard that if a project is published on house, a magazine won't publish it because they consider the views on house are over two million now, usually, and that that's competing with a, a magazine and they want exclusivity. Is that true? Yeah. Um, well, I, there are two parts to that question. Um, the first part is house itself, and I, I think a lot of designers have a very ambivalent relationship to house, uh, especially in this particular sector of the market, which is extremely high-end. Um, and a lot of house isn't so much, and a lot of people feel like they put a lot of time and money and effort into getting on house, and they get like 600 people calling and asking them what kind of tile is in that bathroom, <laughs> but they will never, ever, ever get a client out of it. And they'll never hire them. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, which is a more general question, which I think is very good, is 
a lot of publications will be concerned with how many people might have seen large portions of a project that you want them to publish. Uh, each publication will have its own feel on this, so I can't speak for everybody. But in general, if you're looking to have something published by a major magazine somewhere or even some of the major websites, you know, or things like Apartment Therapy or whatever, Remodelista, don't immediately put lots of images up online every time you have something photographed. If you want to publicize it, one of the best things to do is like Michael was talking about is while you're having the major rooms photographed, also take a bunch of little close-ups and some little vignettes because then you can kind of tease your readership by sharing those little bits without giving away the whole game. And then you have a year or a year and a half to go down your list of publications you'd like to approach, which you should also do one at a time. Um, and they have time to take a few weeks, each of them, to look at it and think about it and consider it because they will probably take that long and get back to you and two or three of them may pass on it before you find the right hit. But then the whole thing hasn't been seen by several thousand people so that once the people are able to publish it, it is still kind of new. Um, my question is, you said Instagram is most important. Um, so what is the um, importance between story versus actual posts? And also frequency, what do you think is too much? What do you think is too little? Um, and what's just right? Well, I know that Instagram will tell you that stories do not contribute to the analytics about where you are on the platform. They say that it doesn't count. I disagree. I've, I've, had, store, I've had posts that were stagnant and then posted a story and all of a sudden the post got three likes out of nowhere. Um, there's a lot of mystery to the algorithm. <laughs> you know, a lot, basically how it works is if you post something the 20 closest people who always like and always comment on your post see it first. Social media is about engagement, it's about a conversation. So if Instagram determines that those 20 people liked and commented on your post, they're going to move it up to the next 100 people. And then if there's engagement at that level, it goes up even higher. The most critical factor is if someone comments on your post, make sure you have notifications turned on on your phone. Because what happens is if someone comments and it takes you three or four hours before you say thank you, even just thank you, your engagement will go down. Because Instagram feels that you are not engaged with your audience, you are simply broadcasting. That's very important. I'd also say you also have to post things in order to be seen. So if you're not posting, people aren't going to be coming across your profile. So at least one, to you know, upwards maybe four times a day, but anything higher, you know, you might annoy people. If you annoy them, it's fine, you know. Bye. But like on average, I would say I post about 16 times a month, about every other day. You probably post 50 times a month. I post every day. We have yeah. a content schedule. Yes. Yeah, and so one people. of the things that's great about Katie's Instagram is contests. Again, it's engagement. Mm -hmm. If you're giving something away or you're asking a question, you're going to encourage your audience to engage, which Instagram is going to favor. 
and I, I would point out kind of from the traditional marketing point of view, I mean, engagement of a specific kind is generally what you're after because just feeling like, oh, I have to be on Instagram because everybody is and I have to post all the time and I have to have six billion likes, what does that actually get you? So the question is, who are the people who are on Instagram that you want to engage with? How can you reach them and have them engage with you in a way that's actually meaningful and will lead to something you want to have happen? So again, very focused and very considered is always the way that I personally would suggest going. Yeah, broadcast marketing was about putting something out repeatedly in the hopes that someone would catch it. Social media is person-to-person -person marketing. You're not trying to overwhelm them with something. You're looking for them to reach out back to you. Can so, I add something to that? Yeah. Um, I know a Canadian designer who posts every day at 8, 8 p.m. Her, her market is mothers and people who are, you know, got their kids settled by 8 p.m. And she does one post a day, that's it. And she's got a huge engagement. And her target market are those people who are sitting down, they're done with their day, or, and what do we do? We pick up our phones. So that's her strategy. And she's got big engagement and big followers. And she's like, and it's simple. It's one a day. It's not, you know, if you have a marketing person, you can do a lot more. If you're one person doing it yourself, I heard people say four times a day. And I don't do, I don't do that either. But, um, but I think it's a, it's a great thought because we all sit down with our phones in our hands when we sit down to watch TV. No, what Linda's saying is extremely important. You can Google this. And if you Google it, you'll see that on Mondays, for instance, Instagram will pretty much be flat until 10 a.m. That's because we've all gone to the office, we're catching up on email, we're planning out our week, and then at 10 a.m. till 5 p.m., because we're done for the day, we're on Instagram. <laughs> if you look at that same chart on a Tuesday, Instagram, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. If you look at Wednesday and Thursday, from 3 to 5 p.m., Instagram is lit up because it's a Wednesday and a Thursday, we wanna go out, we're, on, we're looking to see what our friends are doing. The other thing that's really interesting to me, 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., Wednesday and Thursday morning, Instagram is very busy. I'm guessing everyone's on the treadmill, I don't know, but <laughs> 5 to 7 a.m. on Wednesday and Thursday is a very busy time. The least popular time to post is a Sunday. So reading the room, I got the vibe that people are not going to start posting four times a day. <laughs> so, so maybe if I could ask each of you, if I'm just starting today, what's, what is the ba absolute baseline that I need to market my company? Is your top two marketing tips question? No. I'm switching it up. I'm switching it up. <laughs> Katie, what would you say? I would say a website, uh, mainly for all the reasons why I listed. Um, you know, majority of people do have websites, so when people go to search for your website and you don't show up, uh, you know, they begin to wonder why. Um, you know, it's kind of as simple as that. And you know, you get to put your message out there. I mean, you can't be everywhere at once, but your website can. You know, it can be your spokesperson. It can be. Think of it as another employee. So you know, really, it is worth investing in. What do you think is critical to have on the home page? Like sometimes I'll go to a person's website because I want to call them. Yeah. And if the phone number's there, I'll get frustrated. Well, 
you 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 go to the website because you want to call use, them. I just yeah, I want to call someone and I'll go to the website to get the phone number. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's so like, you what do, are the things that you feel need to be on a that a need home, to be like, on a you're homepage. saying the homepage yeah. has to have just a certain amount of information, but not too much. Yeah, it's a delicate balance. I mean, it also depends, like, based on industry. So, photographer, you want a big hero image. You know, you don't want to have an entire grid of photos. That's going to be overwhelming. That's your portfolio. Um, but you do want to have, like, you know, what sets you aside from other photographers. You know, that main message. Um, maybe, you know the places that you service. You know, if you're not willing to travel, you say like New England photographer, you know, so there are certain things that you do want to make sure like that you want uh, to present up front. And that's, again, something that we're working on right now. We just have a photo and then what's on our blog. So people might not necessarily know that we specialize in classic American architecture, you know, for um, contemporary living. Yeah, and I should actually point out, um, I mean, it's so natural, I guess, that people tend to fixate on the homepage, but depending on what your content is on the website and how you are using it, and particularly where your links are coming from, either from Google search or from outreach that you've done on your social media, a lot of people may not actually be entering your site through the homepage. Yeah. And so whatever pages that people may come into need to be able to tell the story that you want the people to see just as well as your home page. So don't assume that that's always where people are going to start the journey. We have, a couple, we have a couple questions we want to get to here on the right side of the room. I wanted to ask how you prioritize, um, we've talked about a narrative, how you prioritize text versus image. And I feel like our field is very visual, a lot about the but um, what about text or narrative in a textual form? How does that fall, both, I guess, on a website or Instagram? You want to be able to convey your message in the least amount of words possible, because really you don't have that much time you know, to capture their attention, that 0 .05 seconds. That's just totally unreasonable. So you, know, you can tell a fuller story with, say, you, know, you do your 100 characters, whatever your intro, paragraph and if people want to learn more then they can choose to click I want to read more about this but you want to be able to get like the main point the main message across and you know one to two sentences or else you'll lose them actually I can jump in on that one just briefly also uh, and I will have to use those evil initials SEO on this one um, a lot of our audience is very visual but all of the search engines and all of the people who are looking for content are using keywords. And so you don't need to have a huge amount of text on your pages, but what text you do have needs to be very functional. And so essentially the, the quickest idea of SEO is what questions are users gonna be typing into that little Google search thing that you are the answer for? or that this particular piece of content is the answer for. So if you are an architectural firm in New England, you don't necessarily want to show up in every user's search that says architecture, because 99.99943% of those people are not anywhere near here, and they're not going to want to know about this architect in Boston. But if you want people who are looking for architecture, you know, a particular style, North Shore, 
luxury home, those are the kinds of words that you want to have both as keywords on your images and your, and your, your pages and also in the text itself. So the, the, the keyword, the, the basic, like two or three sentences about each project that are kind of explain what is really interesting and unique about it that people might considerably be searching for who and you would be the person they want to talk to, that's kind of what you want to focus on. Question right up front. Yeah, I'm curious um, about where blogging fits in particular. So we just started a blog. <laughs> Super exciting. Um, so we it actually coincides with our social media. We have a posting schedule. Mondays are actually very popular for us, our makeover Mondays. So we do capture those Monday blues. But um, Thursdays, we have a theme Thursday, and that's our blog. And so what we'll do is we'll post just, you know, we'll just pick, so, okay, tomorrow we're doing spring cleaning. Not tomorrow, Thursday. Um, tomorrow's the first day of spring. So Thursday, we are introducing spring cleaning. So you do want to keep it, you know, somewhat relative. Um, also, keep in mind who your audience is, like who you're talking to. Um, so for us, we're talking to, in this case, homeowners. Um, and they're not necessarily our homeowners. They're all homeowners, you know, um, so yeah, you want to provide relative, relative content and a blog, I would say that really helps with SEO. Um, you know, they see that you're keeping up to date with information, you're constantly posting, your website's constantly updated with content, um, and it's relative, you know, to what people want to see. We're going to take one more question and then we're going to start to kind of wrap things up. Um, John. Hello, you. we can hear you. Um, just as a sort of a thing that's a pet peeve for me is when somebody sends you an email and their signature is their name. And unless I call somebody <laughs> three or four times a week or twice a week, I may not know their phone number. And so that's one more step is to look mm -hmm. into my Outlook or my phone and look up their phone number. So I think everybody should have a signature that has at a minimum, their phone number, and nowadays it's most likely the cell phone at the office, and maybe a web link and their email link. Um, the other one that's sort of less relevant now, but when I would get a bill from, let's, in most cases, it would be a subcontractor, and on the bill, there is no way to contact them. There's no phone number. <laughs> so once again, I have to ask why this bill is got this indiscrepancy in it, and I have to go dig up the number. So that's just a little and then this goes back to the end of your presentation, Kyle, which is, could you guys collectively comment about what do you, this is a smaller issue than the 30,000 foot view on marketing, but what do you think about people in architectural photography? Oh. No, I feel stuck with it. Do you have a person that's walking through the room? Is there someone opening the refrigerator? Yeah. And it seems more times than not there isn't, but when you talk about wanting to make something stylized and inviting, you know, do the shoes, in the throw, in the color, it's a little safer, you know, but so what's your view on people and when you do and when you don't like to see that? Yeah, well, I mean, my personal view is a little bit agnostic because I've seen people who do it both ways very well. Um, sometimes the people can end up being kind of a tick. There are certain publications that always have people and they're always blurry. 
or uh, you know, these days, it's kind of like if you look at Architectural Digest in the last couple of years, there are always people, and they're always incredibly good looking, and they're always perfectly fabulous, and it's kind of turned into more of a, aren't these rich people incredibly wonderful, than let's actually look at the design and the architecture kind of thing. So again, I, I guess it sort of depends on what effect you're trying to give. You know, for me, our, at New England Home, we don't do people very often, uh, except in occasional portraits or something if people particularly want that, because we feel that one of the functions of showing people these beautiful rooms is to kind of let them imagine that they want to be in there. And if you are putting other people in there already, it's kind of might get in the way. But obviously, other publications feel very differently about that, so I'm not going to make a hard and fast rule. I don't yeah, know, Michael. Every publication is different. Michael. I mean, the Globe magazine loves people, puppies, and babies. Um, you know, and, and personally, I find it frustrating. So with the Globe, if you pitch a project, and obviously we've not put the people in, in the shots, typically. If you pitch a project and it, the Globe finds out the homeowners are interested in being part of the story, giving their name, having them photographed, the Globe will send me back to do two or three shots with the people in them. And I find it frustrating because those are the shots that are going to run. But from the Globe's perspective, you know, they're reaching people who make 30000 a year and people who make $100 million a year. And they feel that having people in the photos makes the spaces relatable. You can maybe look at someone and, and see yourself there. It also reduces the hate mail that they get sometimes. Like, why are you promoting these rich people? Um, so it depends. Boston Home likes people, but it depends. I personally prefer not to have people in photos. I think it's a distraction. I would suspect that we could likely stay here till Friday and keep this conversation going. <laughs> but the whole entire premise of Bad Talks is to provide some tangibility to these conversation topics that we have. And so I wanted to close tonight out by just asking each panelist for what are the top two takeaways, um, top two marketing tips that you would have for building architecture and design professionals in this room. And Michael, you're going to get to go first. Yay. So there's actually three. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and I've mentioned them. Um, so authenticity, transparency, and then I have a quick story for the third one. In November 1967, there was a musician who walked in an art gallery. The first room, the walls, the floor, and the ceiling were painted chalk white, and there was a ladder in the middle of the room. The musician walked up to the ladder, looked up, and saw a magnifying glass hanging from the ceiling. Curious, he climbed the ladder, took the magnifying glass, and read what appeared to be a word on the ceiling. That musician got down off the ladder and went into the next room, eventually meeting this artist. Many years later, John Lennon would admit that if Yoko Ono had written something negative on the ceiling, like no, or maybe, or F off, John would have walked out of the gallery, and John and Yoko would never have met and some of you are saying the Beatles never would have broken up. <laughs> but what did Yoko write on the ceiling? A simple three-letter word, yes. Never underestimate the power of positivity. Okay. Um, it's a hard one to follow up on. But I kind of shared, you know, my um, one, you know, have a website. Um, it's important 
but not only just to have a website, do it right, because you know it could be equally as damaging. You can turn people away. Um, but also, I will combat with that with another philosophical: don't compare your beginning to somebody's middle. You know, so you guys might be just starting, but we were all just starting at one point. Um, and mine are a little bit repetitious, but I'll, I'll do that anyway. The first one is the power of imagery is almost everything here uh, because what we do is all about the look of things. Uh, so invest in really good photography, both time and effort and money. Uh, I know it seems like it can be a lot of money, but if you spend three or four or five thousand dollars doing a beautiful job photographing one of your best projects, those images will last for a really long time. You can use them everywhere on social media, in your website, wherever. Um, that's the only way you can really f get in that fraction of a second into people's heads and make them want to come to your website and look up your phone number if it's not immediately there and talk to you. And if you get one half million dollar project out of it, the profit from that has paid for the shoot three or four times over, if not more. So it's really worth it. If you get three projects, you're doing great. Uh, so it seems like a lot of money up front, but it really will pay off. Uh, and then two is really what I said earlier, which is just be intentional and be careful and do your homework about what you are trying to communicate to whom because you have very little time and therefore you don't want to waste that little time doing stuff that doesn't matter. So just focus, I think, is the big one for me. Excellent. Well, thank you all very, very much for coming tonight. We hope that, uh, we hope that you'll continue the conversation here with us afterwards. Thank you so much to our panelists. Our next talk is on Wednesday, June 12th. It'll be the final talk of season six, and our topic is urban dwellings. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you, John.